We've only just begun to live. White lace and promises, a kiss for luck, and we're on our way. Do you remember the song? Who sang it? The Carpenters, very good, yes. Now I know, now I know that We've Only Just Begun is considered one of the cheesiest, sappiest, overly sweet and sentimental songs ever written or sung. But before you say that to me, or especially before you say that to my wife, Julie, you need to know this. My mother, who has a beautiful contralto voice, sang that as a solo at Julie's and my wedding over three decades ago. We know it's kind of cheesy, but we love it nonetheless. I also want to let you know, this is a longer story for another time, but at our wedding, we had a blind photographer. The flowers didn't show up, and my father, who was the minister, forgot to put the communion service out for the ceremony. Other than that, it was beautiful and perfect. <laughs> a couple of years ago, Julie and I were sitting on the couch, flipping channels. It was a Friday night, had nothing to do, thought we'd just stay in and watch TV, and I was looking for a movie, couldn't find one, started looking for a game of some kind to watch, couldn't find one. If you ever been there, you know, we've got 1,500 channels on our cable and there's nothing on. And so finally I flipped it over to the PBS station and sure enough, it was one of those fundraising specials, one where they focus on a particular music group or style and you know who they were focusing on? The Carpenters, of course. So I paused for a moment and it was Karen singing one of her, one of her songs and pretty soon a song was over and then another one and it was we've only just begun. I set, the, I set the remote down, I took a hold of Julie's hand, and we sat there and watched it all the way through to the end. When Karen was done singing, I looked at Julie and there were just tears pooling in her eyes. She looked at me and she said, are you about to cry too? And I said, it's allergies. I think I've got some allergies going on here. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how music can do that, how music can transport us? From wherever we are in the moment, no matter what's going on around us, you hear a, per a particular song, a beautiful anthem, whatever it might be, and the next thing you know, for Julie and me, we went back 30 years to that day when we were just 20 years old. That's how old we were when we got married. When we had nothing, no money, didn't have a house, didn't have college degrees yet, we had nothing but a dream of a life together. Earlier in my, this week, I sent an email out to the congregation like I do every Friday, and I put a little preview of this sermon in that email. I got a note back from Mary Hamilton, a member of our church. She wanted to let me know about something that occurred to her back, I think, in 1973. I got her permission to share this story. She said she was going through a particularly rough time in her life, spiritually, emotionally, etc. She asked God for something, for, for, for a sign, for a bit of help to get her through and out of nowhere, the Patsy Cline song always came on. And ever since then, that song has been a reminder that God is always present and with her, no matter what is happening in her life. I've got a friend back in Kansas City who's kind of a hard-charging guy, big-time guy, he's very successful, he's done very well, but sometimes he gets frustrated, like many of us do, with the way the world just seems to get so ugly and awful and terrible and full of death and dying and destruction and worse, and he says what he does at the end of a day like that when it's just too much to consider and too much to think about. He goes into his study, closes the door, cues up Beethoven's ninth, puts the earplugs in, cranks the volume up, and for an hour, he's carried to another dimension. Isn't that what music can do? Isn't the way that why we continually look for music to speak to us, to, to guide us? It has the power to take us away. John's gospel this morning 
the one that was just sung for you by, by the choir. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and He was the light of the world. And the, and the darkness, the darkness did not overcome the light. That's, I, I, it's God's love song written not just to the church, but, but to the world, to all of us. It's, and I, I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering this morning if we don't need to hear this song over and over and over again, if we don't need this reminder as the darkness of violence seems to just hover over our land, if we don't need this constant reminder of the light of Christ shining in the darkness. It's a beautiful love poem. It's God's love song written to to a world caught up in fear and anger and frustration and darkness. It's also meant to remind us of, of that first verse in the Bible. Do you remember the first verse in the Bible? In the beginning, God, before anything else was, when the earth was a formless void, when chaos ruled over everything, there was the Spirit of God hovering, moving, creating in the beginning, in the darkness. God created. This is a word spoken against the darkness, spoken even in darkness that is formed by our own chaotic, foolish, and stupid behaviors. It's as though God is speaking to us even now from the heavenly realm. I think that's why we return constantly to Scripture over and over again to remind ourselves, especially in times of fear and worry and darkness and death, that God's light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. It's a scholar named Tom Wright who says that this word, and he calls it the cosmic Christ. I, I love that phrase, the cosmic Christ. The cosmic Christ has existed since the beginning of time. It is that same cosmic Christ who spoke in the darkness of creation, who now speaks in the darkness of our own lives. And it's as though God is singing again. In the beginning was the word, and there was life, and life was in Christ. And this got me to thinking this week, there's something at work in the world today. There's something that is, that is utterly amazing. People are returning to the sacred. I've had a number of conversations, most of them with people under the age of 40, who've come to me in a variety of ways and a variety of settings and have said, I'm looking for something spiritual in my life. I'm looking for something mysterious, something that speaks beyond this, the mundane, everyday stuff. Nine to five, nine to five, nine to five, Monday to Friday, Saturday, soccer, Sunday, basketball. Then it's nine to five all over again. There's got to be something. There's got to be something in this world that matters, isn't there? Is there something sacred and holy at work in the world? Some of these these folks who talk to me say they can't even put their finger on it, really name it. They're not trying to get back to that old-time religion. They're not trying to get back to something that existed in the 50s that no longer matters today. Not that at all. Instead, they're saying, what about now? What about right now? And there was a young adult who spoke to me here at our South Campus after the 11 o'clock service a couple of months ago. She said, I've been coming a few weeks now, and frankly, I don't understand everything that happens. I'm not sure why we do this or do that or do something else, but it feels like, it feels like at this 11 o'clock service, we're doing something that matters. It feels like we're gathering in the name of someone who matters. There are many, many young adult voices saying similar things to me. They're looking for a spiritual life that is alive and thriving, not just on Sundays, but on every day. 
And I've had most of these conversations, frankly, with young adults who work for us at Akita, at our Camp Akita. Last summer, I had several opportunities to visit with our counseling staff up there, and almost every single one of them, in one way or another, said, said exactly what I'm saying today. I'm looking for something. And when I'm at Akita, it's like I find it. At Akita, I'm loved and welcome for who I am. At Akita, I don't worry about what I look like or what, I, what others might think about me. I just, I just am the person that God created me to be. And when I work with those kids in my cabin and I love them and name them as part of God's wonderful family, it's as though the Spirit of God is right there in the room with me and it's unbelievable. And then the next question, you know what the next question is? How do we bring that same Spirit with us when we come home at the end of the summer? How do, we, how do we make sure that we find the life that we're looking for? It's really a question about spiritual growth, about finding the presence of God in our lives wherever we might be. Listen to my buddy Mike Iaconelli, a brilliant writer, a great preacher. He says, spiritual growth is more than a procedure. It's a wild search for God. Listen to this phrase, in the tangled jungle of our souls. Don't you love that? A wild search for God in the tangled jungle of our souls. A search which involves a volatile mix of messy reality, wild freedom, frustrating stuckness, increasing slowness, and a healthy dose of gratitude. There's people looking for this in the wild tangle of the world today. A couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, there were a number of young adults in the church I served in Kansas City, all of them men, who cornered me one Sunday after a worship service. They said, Glenn, we're, we're looking for a Bible study. We would love it if you would teach us and lead us in a Bible study. Could you do that? Could you pick it one night a week in the fall, this fall coming up, and lead a Bible study? Now, I gotta tell you, any pastor who gets requested to lead a Bible study and says no, he or she should lose their ordination in that moment. It's a wonderful joy when somebody says they actually wanted to, to discuss with us something we're actually trained in. What a, what a nice thing. All these, all these guys were in their 30s. Young men, married, little kids, doing well in their professions, and every one of them said, it feels as though we're missing something. We're looking for a life. So we took the Gospel of Matthew. We began reading it through it, verse by verse, studying it carefully, listening to this ancient voice of Scripture. We read through the Sermon on the Mount. We'd been in about three or four weeks in the, in the study when, when one of the guys said, Glenn, this is amazing. This young man who was talking to me, his name is Matt. He's an attorney, a United States prosecuting attorney, a brilliant young, young man. Uh, wife, couple of kids, doing very well, very successful, moving up the ladder as you might think, but he, he had this squinched up look on his face. We just read the Sermon on the Mount. And he looked and he said, is the church aware this is in here? <laughs> I said, that's a really good question, Matt. We ought to explore that. He said, but I'm being serious. He said, just take that phrase, love your enemies alone. Are we even paying attention to that in our church? I've been in the church my whole life. I haven't heard a sermon on it. Are we paying attention to these words of Jesus? Because it seems to me, he said, Glenn, it seems to me if we'd let Jesus guide our steps, we might actually make a difference in the world. I said, Matt, that's a pretty good sermon. I love what you're saying. <clears throat> you see, the places where we hear these voices the most are among people who are truly looking for something real in life, for a way of living that will frankly not only change their lives, their families, their communities, but their and our world. And music has the power 
to inspire those kind of feelings, to motivate us, to move out in faith, to move forward in hope, to make a difference in the world that we experience. That's why Camp Akita really is so important to this congregation, and it's really become a, a, a vital part of my own life. As, as your pastor, I'm so proud of the heritage of this church and the way we've lived out the, the beauty and the, the power of Camp Akita and the way we experience it here. Listen to the words of, of Roy Burkhart, who back in the 40s and 50s helped to open up Camp Akita. Berkey said, a camp is not really a camp until it is filled with the singing voices around the campfire. Do you hear how clear that is? It's not really a camp until those singing voices fill the air. That's when we know. That's when we know. Because music has the power to capture the heart and connect it to the mind to give us courage to live out the song in our life. But music does something else. Sometimes it's hard to miss this. It's, it's easy to miss this. Music often challenges us in ways we may or may not like. At the end of the service today, we're going to sing a hymn. It's one of my favorites. I love the tune especially. I love the words, guide me, O great redeemer. It has a, has a rising melody, the kind of melody that just makes you want to stand up and sing loud and full and put your shoulders back and open up your lungs and let the words come. And then when the song's over, you're just ready to stand and march and head out those doors and make your way to a really good brunch. You know, it just excites you. <laughs> But listen to the words. Listen to these words. And maybe it's more than brunch then. Open now the crystal fountain where the healing waters flow. Let the fire and cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Songs of praises. Songs of praises. I will ever sing to you. I will ever sing to you. Yes and amen. Let's go. But it's more than just about feeling good. It's more than just a rousing melody to send us out to eggs and sausage and whatever's waiting. No. It's a call to action. It's a call to go and to follow. That reference to the cloudy pillar, a pillar of fire, that's a reference to the Hebrew slaves escaping Egypt, led by Moses. It's a reminder to, to, the, to us that just as the, the Hebrews made their way to the promised land when they followed God. We too are to fall in the same way. And just like those same Hebrews, sometimes we stumble and fall. Sometimes we forget to follow. And it's really not about so much about the pillar of fire. It's really about following the laws of God, which are as simple and as, as clear as loving God and loving your neighbor. Too often we fall. Too often we stumble. This is a word that calls us to action. This song not only wants to make us feel good, it wants us to send us into the world to bring goodness and hope and love wherever we may go. John's recitation of God's love song here in John chapter one is doing something similar. His words are calling us to accountability. It's a beautiful piece of poetry and so it might be easy to miss this. John wants us to see though that the one we name Jesus, the one we name Lord and Savior, this one who was the word who was with God in the beginning and was God, the one who is the light shining the darkness is one who calls us to then to follow in his ways. Anytime the church lets the convenient politics of the moment or the convenient economics of the moment control us, we are no longer the church that Jesus Christ called us to be. Sometimes that's a hard lesson to learn. I recall many years ago when I was in high school, I was at a 
service at my dad's church, First Christian Church in San Francisco. Dad had arranged for a couple of Russian Orthodox nuns to be speakers on a weeknight. About 100 people gathered in the sanctuary, and these two little nuns got up to speak. They're about, I don't know, four feet 11, you know, like 87 pounds, just, just tiny, sweet little people. But in the middle of this one's, one nun's presentation, she said, do you know that our sisters back in Russia, they had escaped the Soviet Union. Do you know that our sisters back in the Soviet Union pray for the United States every day? They pray that you will become a Christian nation. There was a little bit of murmur in the congregation. Did, did she say, she, she doesn't she know that we're, we're, we're Christians here? What's she? So there was a Q&A time afterwards, and man politely asked her and said, Sister, can you tell me what you meant by praying for us that we would become Christians? And she said, oh, yes. In the Soviet Union, to be a Christian is a very difficult thing. If you're a follower of Jesus in the Soviet Union, we know who you are. In the United States, our experience so far has been it's hard to tell who's a Christian and who's not. I remember, I was in high school, 15 years old. I remember thinking, that's kind of (laughs) rude. And I remember thinking, it's pretty dang true, too. It's pretty true. You see, a few years ago in in a sermon, I said, my primary identity is as a follower of Jesus as one who wants to let Jesus' teachings guide his life. In, in the sermon, and I'm going to say it again this, this morning, in the sermon I said, I said, now you might think, because I'm a deeply loyal fan of the San Francisco Giants baseball team, that that's really what forms everything about me. That's the way I think about the world. In fact, when I was a little boy, about six years old, my dad took me to a spring training game in Phoenix. And you know, in spring training games, you can get real close to the players. And we were just on the other side of a chain link fence as Willie Mays, number 24, went walking by. And my dad said, that's the greatest baseball player you'll ever see. My dad was right about that. Ever since then, I've been this deeply loyal fan of the San Francisco Giants, but that really isn't the final determination of who I am. My dad went to the University of California. I'm a fan of the Golden Bears, in football and basketball especially. It's a painful thing, but it's what I've got, okay? I'm hoping they don't ever. They played Ohio State a couple years ago. I hope they don't ever play Ohio State again, so I have to worry about that. That doesn't define me, nor does my citizenship in the United States of America. Now, let me be clear. I'm proud to be American, as the cheesy song says. I'm proud of the United States of America. I love this land. I love this country. Last week, Julie and I were doing it again. We were sitting on the, on the couch, flipping channels, looking for something to watch when she finally said, put down the remote after you change it and put it on the Olympics. The Olympics are on. Let's watch the Olympics. So we did. And there was, there was this, did you see this? I didn't know this was a thing. There was team cross-country skiing. Did you see this happen? It's like a relay. And these women were amazing. The way they were skiing around this course, climbing up, they were going up the hill on the skis and then down and then up. And it was unbelievable. And then the, 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 the American woman who was coming around, she'd fallen behind a little bit and she was in second place. You could just see it on her face. You could see it in her body. She was giving everything she possibly could. And we were on the couch. We're cheering, go, come on, baby, come on, go, go, go. Julia was up doing this, trying to help her, you know? <laughs> And finally, at the very last second, that ski just goes across the finish line, and then she collapses in joy and exhaustion, and it was amazing. We're cheering in our house. We started chanting, USA, just Julie and I, USA, USA. It was lovely. I love my country. That moment felt so good. It felt like she was skiing for all of us. It's great to be an American, and my ultimate identity is a follower of Jesus. 
the way I shape and live my life, and I fall far short of it, sometimes daily. But the way I live my life is determined first and foremost and always by the teachings of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Oliver Wiest said? This is the Wiest room, this direction over here. He was a pastor here 100 years ago. First Community Church was being criticized for being Christian light. Pastor Wiest said, if you think so, fine. But all we want to do in this church is follow the teachings of Jesus. We believe that is an extremely high bar. John's words this morning asked me to see myself as an American, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, through the lens of John's beautiful words of the one who came as light, shining in the darkness. Later in his gospel, he'll, he'll quote Jesus again, and he'll help us understand exactly how we do that. Jesus said to his disciples, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, and hear this word, by this, by this love, everyone, everyone will know you're my followers. You see, my friends, it's, it's that simple. And it's that hard. About 20 years ago, my grandfather, a man named Robert Small, passed away. Got a call from my grandmother, his wife, to let me know that Grandpa, after a long battle with an illness, had died. Well, I went immediately into pastor mode. I went into my, my study, got out my notebook, began talking to my grandmother about the service. When would you like it to be? She said, well, I do want you to lead it. I said, I would be privileged and honored to do it. Thank you, Grandma. And began to make some notes about the scriptures we might read and songs we would sing, that sort of thing. Made arrangements to get on a plane a couple days later to fly out to California where he was going to be buried, to be there with my family and friends and all. Flew out to California. The service was beautiful. My friend Stan Smith, who's a pastor uh, there in Orange County, California, helped lead the service. Afterwards, our family and friends all went to Grandma and Grandpa's condo where we had wonderful food and lots of laughter and celebration. My grandpa was a, an amazing man. He was the, the patriarch in our family. When my mom and dad were going through an ugly, nasty divorce, it was my grandfather who stood in the middle of all that mess and made sure that his grandkids were cared for, made sure that my mom was loved, made sure that we could go forward. And I've got dozens of stories like that about Grandpa. It was a beautiful celebration, a marvelous time. The next day, I gathered up my things and put them in my suitcase, got on the plane, and flew back to Atlanta, where I was living at the time. No tears, no sadness, just all celebration. About a month later, I sat down on the couch again. Wait, it sounds like I sit on the couch a lot. <laughs> <laughs> to watch the, the Lakers, Los Angeles Lakers NBA team. It was opening night. Shaquille O'Neal had just been traded to the Lakers. You know, the big, tall, seven-foot Shaquille O'Neal. So I wanted to see how he was going to do in his, in his first game. Julie and the boys had gone to bed. It was quiet. I was just going to watch the game by myself. A afterwards, at halftime, I thought, I need to call Grandpa because my grandfather was a huge basketball fan. He loved the Lakers. He'd been living in California since the 40s, had always cheered for them. He was a farm boy, grew up in Kansas. He played high school basketball himself. He's about 6'2", same height as me, only a lot better player than me. So we kind of had this bond about basketball. And I thought, I need to call Grandpa. And I picked up the phone, and I dialed their number and I remembered he'd, he'd died. And he wouldn't be there to talk about the Lakers and Shaquille and 
and then I wept. I still remember like it was yesterday. Just out of nowhere, just those tears just came flooding. I was just his little grandson again. In his honor, I stayed up late and watched the rest of the game, and then, and then I went to bed. And then I had a dream. I think it was a dream. So I woke up, and I looked over to the side of the bed, and there was my grandpa standing right there. But it wasn't the 83-year-old man who'd been fighting all kinds of stuff his last few lives, bent over by life, bent over by disease. No, it was my grandpa, like about 50 years old. I, I remembered him as a kid, strong and tall and handsome, perfectly dressed. My grandfather was one of those old school guys. You wore a tie every day of the week. He mowed the lawn wearing a tie, you know? And there he was standing there just as real as could be. And I, I remember thinking, is this a dream? Am I awake? What exactly? And then he smiled. And he pointed at Julie and he said, love her. And Glenn, he said, love your church. That's all I have to say. Friends, it's that simple. And it's that hard. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love and everyone everyone will know who we follow.